the last few weeks, you'll know we've been going through the story of Exodus. Uh, if you're jumping in uh, for the first time with us this morning, very welcome. I hope you feel as at home among us as you can, given the circumstances. Um, uh, but what we're going to do is read from Exodus 17, uh, and it's probably useful for you to know, therefore, a little bit about where we are. Uh, God's people have been slaves in Egypt, and uh, through a series of remarkable events, uh, some plagues, uh, and ultimately uh, the angel of the Lord passing through Egypt uh, and killing all the firstborn sons. God's people have escaped. They've gone through the Red Sea that was parted for them. They're now in the desert, and they've spent the last couple of chapters grumbling. Grumbling there's no food. Grumbling there's no water. God has provided for them amazingly. Just like last week, we looked at the story of the manna, where God gave this bread, bread from heaven, in order to sustain them in the wilderness. And we're going to pick up, pick up now, Exodus 18 and verse 1. Sorry, 17, verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrelling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And secondly this morning, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, when you prepare sermons in the week, there's all sorts of resources given in, by uh, wise Christians to help you understand passages, uh, commentaries uh, on books of the Bible. Uh, what is super helpful is when a New Testament author writes about an Old Testament passage, which is what we've got here. So 1 Corinthians 10, 
which I'm about to read to us, is Paul, in part, explaining what's been going on in at least some of the passage we just read. So this is Paul running some Christians in ancient Greece. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let me pray and we'll look at this passage together. Our Father God, we've just heard that these things were written down for our instruction as an example to us. And we pray, therefore, that you would give us wise hearts that hear your word this morning amidst all the the difficulties of our own situation, amidst all the distractions of life. Uh, We pray that in your mercy, uh, your spirit of wisdom will be poured into our hearts this morning, uh, that we might know uh, who you are, uh, that we might not grumble or test you as our forefathers did in the desert. Bless us, therefore, with the greatest gift, the gift of faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Is God with you? Is he for you? Is he with us as a church? Is he for us as a church? That's the question our forefathers, the Israelites, wrestled with in the desert just seen in that second passage, Paul ties a really tight link between the church in the modern day, his day in Greece about 2,000 years ago, but but in the church, the people of God after the cross, after the resurrection, after Pentecost, and the Israelites in the desert. They are our forefathers, our ancestors. And so as we read this story in Exodus this morning, we're reading about our own family. And they're remarkably similar, aren't they? Family traits get passed down the generations, don't they? Uh, you can sometimes see, you know, well, little Sammy's got daddy's eyes or, or, or little Becky's got Emily's ears or whatever. Um, but, but, but so do, do the characteristics. If you're a parent, it's a bit scary when you can see some of your own faults in particular coming out in your children. Uh, part of the reason that we're given the Old Testament, says Paul, is to learn from our ancestors. 
and not fall into the same traps as them. Uh, the big question is, is God with us? Do you see that in, in verse uh, 7 of our passage? Uh, the people quarrel. They quarrel with Moses, but ultimately they're quarreling with God. And their question is, is the Lord among us or not? They're asking, is he really with us, God? Uh, you can see what's prompted it. They're in the desert. Uh, as the story begins, they move on through the wilderness of sin. The wilderness of sin is just the name of the place. It's nothing to do with sin in terms of sort of being bad. It's just the name of the desert. Uh, they, they're in the desert, and there's no water. And so they start to complain and quarrel. We're going to die. Uh, we're going to perish. We were better off back in Egypt. Uh, just like the previous chapter, and indeed the chapter before, uh, the people lose faith in an instant and start thinking, well, God hasn't really got our back. And again, if you follow the story with us over the last couple of weeks, or you read this story before, it, you can sort of roll your eyes. Oh, stupid Israelites. Uh, just a couple of chapters ago, they were, they were thirsty in the wilderness, and God took them to these, these uh, springs, these pools at Elim, uh, where there was shade and the palm trees and water to drink. Uh, just the chapter before, they were, they were hungry in the desert, and God provided the manna from heaven. This is the generation that saw the great plagues in Egypt, saw the Red Sea parted, saw the Nile turn to blood, saw the gnats and the flies and the darkness, saw the most miraculous work of God well, in the history of the Bible, at least until the coming of Christ. And still they doubt. That's what we're like, isn't it? Uh, you may have heard 50, 500, 5,000 sermons uh, you've sung 5,000 songs, you've read the Bible 5,000 times, and yet still you doubt. Is God really with me? Has he really got my back? Uh, is he willing to help? That's one thing we doubt. Uh, he's ho so holy and good and pure, and I am so faithless and sinful and corrupt. Would he really be willing Uh, willing to love me, care for me, look after me. Uh, particularly if at the moment you are in a bit of a desert experience. If, if it looks like life is hard, if, if it looks as if there's all sorts of dangers out there. Is he willing? Or maybe for you it's not so much is he willing, but is he able? Uh, is he really able to supply everything I need? Or, or ought I not to, to chip in? Can I really trust him? what the Israelites are doing here. Is he really among us? And Moses is clear what's going on. When you ask that question, you are testing the Lord. And you see that in verse two. Why are you testing the Lord? He's provided for you endless times and here you are testing him. Now, again, there's an irony there. Over the last few chapters, God has said he is testing his people, testing the kind of training sense, getting them used to, to relying on him. And here they turn it round and say, well, okay, we're going to test you, God. Are you really for us? Now, it's okay for God to test his people, but it's not okay at all for them to test him. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. In fact, the whole place, although it's called Rephidim, which just means plains at the beginning, is renamed by Moses, Massa and Meribah. Uh, those two words mean quarreling and testing. Okay, so this whole incident happens at... It's a bit like it's happening at Quarrel Town and Testingville or something. 
uh, the place gets renamed because this is the time that the Israelites put God uh, to the test. Two things this morning that are meant to reassure us that God is for us, that he is among us. Uh, the first is these first seven verses. I want to ask a very simple question. What has he done for us? What has he done for us? It'll help us see uh, that God is for us. Uh, children, the key all this morning is to keep your eye on one thing, okay? And that is the staff uh, or the rod, uh, the rod of Moses. Uh, in both halves of this passage, uh, Moses' staff, his big stick, is the key to what's going on, okay? So keep your eye on that, okay? If you lose concentration for a bit, the staff, that's what you want to keep your eye on. And so let's look at the, the, the first half, verses 1 to 7. Well, what has he done for us? Uh, well, uh, we begin with quarreling. This time it's not just grumbling, but quarreling. See, this, the, the temperature's been turned up. Verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses. They were grumbling in the last two chapters, now it's quarreling. It's much more argumentative, it's fist raised. Uh, and so, well, a scene is put together. Uh, and the scene we're meant to be imagining here is a court scene. Uh, Moses cries out to the Lord, verse 4, What shall I do with these people? They're, they're, they're ready to stone me. Stone me isn't like mob violence. Uh, that's an execution. Yeah, that, that's how, in the times of Israel, uh, criminals were put to death. Okay, it's a judicial scene, a court scene. Uh, Moses is saying, if you like, Lord, they, they've built the gallows and tied the hangman's noose. I can hear them charging up the electric chair. The firing squad is assembled. It's a court scene. Oh, we see that too with the elders. See what God says. Oh, verse 5. Pass on before the people. Walk before the people. Taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Uh, again, in verse 6, it's emphasized. Moses obeys the command in the sight of the elders of Israel. The elders are gathered. The elders are, are, are the leaders. But they're also the judges. We'll see that more clearly next, uh, next week in the next passage. But the elders functioned as the kind of judges. Uh, it, the Israelites' the legal system worked a bit different. Judges and juries were essentially the same things. They were the one who, 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 who uh, decided whether someone was guilty or, or not guilty. And then we've got the staff. Uh, verse 5. Uh, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Staff, the centre of everything in this passage. The staff is the staff of judgment. It's the one with which you struck the Nile. Children, do you remember what happened when the, no, Moses hit the Nile with his stick? What happened to the Nile? Yeah? It turned into blood. Brilliant, yeah. It was a sign of judgment on the, on the Egyptians. So the whole scene is one of justice, judgment. The court assembles, there are the judges, the elders. There's all this talk of stoning, about death sentences being carried out. The staff of judgment is coming, and the people have been grumbling. So what do you expect to happen? Here comes Moses with the staff. The people have been grumbling and now quarrelling against God for the third time in a row, although he's rescued them. They're sinning against him, testing him as they ought not to do. Justice and judgment is going to fall. God, surely, is going to use the same staff he used to strike the Egyptians down, to strike the Israelites down, who spurned his grace, turned their back on him, failed to trust him time and time again. 
He was patient once. He was patient twice, but come on. They are putting him to the test. And now Moses, with a, with a rod of God, surely it's going to strike and some disaster will hit the people. That's not what happens, is it? Look what God says. Verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Horeb, Sarnia, is the same mountain. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink. Do you see what's going on? It's actually an extraordinary story. God's people are, are, are thirsty. And rather than just praying as they ought to have done, and God would provide, they quarrel against him. They bring these charges against him. You are not a good God. You've just brought us out here to, to die. So God assembles a court. He brings in Moses, who's essentially going to be the, sort of the executioner, if you like, the, the rod of justice. And God says, hit that rock and I am going to stand on it. Who is being struck by the sword of God's justice? God. God says to Moses, strike me. And if we're in any doubt, remember that 1 Corinthians passage uh, where Paul talks about uh, the rock? They drank from the same spiritual rock and the rock was Christ. That the son of God is struck by Moses. Maybe you watched the, the funeral of Prince Philip yesterday. Uh, children, if you, I don't know if you, any of you saw it, but you, you'll have seen the queen uh, walking at one stage past lots of her soldiers. Okay, you know, they've got the, the guards with their big busbies on, the big tall black hats. And they've got their weapons. Some of them had swords strapped by their side. Some of them were carrying rifles. Imagine the queen going up to one of the guards and saying to the guard, draw your sword. Draw your sword. So the guard has to obey the queen because she's the head of everything. So he draws his sword. And then the queen says, hit me. Strike me with your sword. What's, what's the guard going to do? Well, no, I'm, I'm meant to protect you. I'm a soldier. I can't, if I strike you, I, I'm striking the, the one who's in charge of me. I can't lift my hand against my queen. But amazingly here, God says to Moses, draw your sword, your staff, and strike me. The Israelites are guilty and grumbling and quarreling. And God says, strike me instead. Do you see the, the gospel, the good news of Christianity is not about us being so holy or spiritual or good uh, that God rewards us with eternal life. Uh, rather, it, it is about a people who are so useless, so lacking in faith, so lacking in prayer, so lacking in spirituality, so full of actually of hatred towards God, quarreling with him, that they deserve to be struck down. But so great is the love of God that he stands in our place. He sends his son into the world, Jesus Christ, who becomes one of us, represents us he becomes the quarreling angry one and God says draw your sword and strike God substitutes himself for us later on in Isaiah Isaiah prophesies chapter 53 uh, this suffering servant figure and he prophesies that this 
Uh, This suffering servant will bear the sins of many and he will be struck, smitten by God. Same word. He will be struck in order that we might not be. Uh, This substitution uh, is the only hope for mankind in the Bible. It is at the centre of the gospel. Old Testament and new, one gospel, one message, one way of being saved. God is struck by his own justice. Jesus comes under the sword that should have fallen on you and me. It's old news, isn't it? It's simple news. But we need reminding of it week by week because we so quickly become faithless. And what happens when the sword falls, uh, the staff strikes... And you see verse uh, 6, you strike the rock and water shall come out of it. Because the rock is struck, because God is struck in judgment, then life flows for the Israelites. They die without water, they're in the desert. But life flows to them because death struck God's son. I think particularly the water here is meant to be a picture of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, that imagery is picked up in the New Testament, uh, particularly in John's Gospel. Jesus often talks about water. And every now and again, John will sort of say in brackets, by which he means the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul talks again in that second reading we had uh, about the Israelites drinking spiritual drink, eating spiritual food uh, in the manner. As Jesus dies uh, in John's Gospel, a, a, a spear is thrust into his side and blood and water flow. Now the doctors tell you that's what happens when someone dies and I'm sure that's all true. But it's also symbolic. The blood, the atoning blood flows to cleanse us. But water flows because when Christ is struck, that enables God to pour his life-giving spirit upon us. We don't deserve to be full of the Holy Spirit. We don't deserve to be given this spiritual drink. We deserve to fall under justice. But God is so gracious, so loving of you, that he is willing to die the death in order to pour his spirit upon you. Is God with you? Is he for you? Is he with us? Well, look not to to the circumstances around you. Don't look at the desert and try and assess whether God is for me. Can he really be for me when my life is like this? Can he really be for me when my health is like this? Can he really be for me when my finances are like this? My love life is like this. My social life is like this. My family life is like this. You may be in the desert, that the walk between Egypt or the Red Sea, the moment of conversion, of coming to faith, and arriving safely in the promised land is often a walk through a desert. It's part of what these stories are telling us. Remember, Paul says they're an example to us. Life is hard for Christians. And the temptation is to begin to think, well, he's not for me. Either because I've been too bad, so he's unwilling, or he's just not powerful enough. If he was really the God of the universe, surely he could sort my life out. But the call of faith is to look back and see he has been struck. And he therefore has poured his spirit out upon us. Uh, Interestingly, you you might know a bit later in the story, it's actually in the book of Numbers as the the story goes on. Uh, The situation is is sort of repeated. Uh, So that again, the Israelites are in the desert. Again, they're thirsty. Uh, Again, God says, I'm going to provide water 
for you from the rock. And he says to Moses, just go and speak to the rock. Okay, just to speak and it'll flow water. But Moses hits the rock again. And God is furious with him, so cross with him, actually, that Moses never enters the promised land, dies sort of overlooking it on the mountains. And you think, what's, 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 God, what's so serious? It's a little mistake. He hit the rock instead of speaking to it. But, but come on, why should that mean that Moses never gets to, to actually lead the people into the promised land? This great people that he's led all the way through the, the exodus, and now he doesn't get in. What's so serious? What's so serious, I, I think, is it's spelled out for us here. God's justice only needs to fall once. Jesus only needs to die once. The striking only happened once. And because Christ was struck, he died once and for all for your sins. There never needs to be another strike, another blow of God's justice. From now on, we can just ask in prayer. And he pours his blessings on us. We can approach God freely we don't need to make atonement again do, do you ever find that you won't you won't come to god until i don't know you've had a, a bit of a better day spiritually you won't come to god until you've you feel more alive oh i can't pray because i don't feel like i love god it would just be hypocrisy i i can't come to him all those are, are ways of, of trying to make atonement again make peace between god and us again through something we do reading our bible or being kind to our family or being a bit holy or having a whole day uh, avoiding some grievous sin or whatever it might be that there are ways of trying to make peace with god because you don't need to do that again the rock doesn't need striking again i've done it the life-giving water you need that comes to you through the holy spirit is available just ask as you live in the desert as you wonder if god is for you are you coming to him and asking lord give me this life-giving water i need the power of your spirit you paid the price. I know I can approach you. My sins are, are done and struck down in Christ. Now feed me, strengthen me in the desert. Uh, in particular, we need strengthening uh, because life is a battle. That's what we see in the second uh, part of our passage, more briefly. Uh, this story of the Amalekites, this is verses 8 through 16, uh, which lets us know not what has God done for us, but what is God doing for us now? What is God doing for us now? Verses 8 through 16, the Amalekites attack. The Amalekites are kind of like the, the, sort of the regular bad guys in the Old Testament. Uh, each time God does something, rescues his people, brings Saul in as king or David in as king, it's always the Amalekites who are the first enemies. Okay, as you read on uh, in the story of the Old Testament, that the first guys to attack every time are the Amalekites. And here they are again. Uh, and so, uh, as we walk through the, the, the passage, uh, this time God wants his people to be active. So far in Exodus, what have God's people done? Nothing. So what, what do God's people do to, to, to cause the plagues to happen? Nothing. What do they do to part the Red Sea? Nothing. God did everything. But here, God is willing to train them. Uh, verse 9, he, he, he says through, through Moses to Joshua, it's the first time Joshua comes up in the Bible, he's going to be the next leader after Moses. He's a younger man. Go and choose some fighters, some warriors, and go and fight. And I, says Moses, I'm going to go on top of the hill, presuming that's Sinai or one of the foothills of Mount Sinai, with the staff, there it is again, the staff of justice in my hand. So Joshua leads the troops, and they're going to find Amalek. They're going to fight this, this tribe who are trying to kill them. Uh, and Moses goes up the hill with, Moses, with Aaron, his brother, and Hur, who's just introduced for the first time. 
And whenever Moses holds up his hand, Joshua wins a battle. Presumably with a staff in the hand. And whenever he gets tired, Moses is an old man, remember, as the Exodus story begins, he's already 80. Okay, every time he gets tired and his hands drop, the Amalekites start winning. So eventually Aaron and her have to hold up his hands. So Moses' hands are up. And Joshua wins through. Uh, the Amalekites are routed. God leads his people into battle. Okay, the, the, the Christian life, this walk between being saved and getting safely home to heaven, is, is off, very often a battle. And it's a battle in which we're meant to be active, not just sit back and say, well, God, over to you. But for us, the, the battle clearly isn't against people. Do you ever read the stories of the Old Testament about these wars, you know, God's sending his people to fight people, and they make you faintly uneasy? Sort of embarrassing bits of the Old Testament. What am I meant to do with all this fighting and warfare and slaughter? What's plenty we could say about that another time? But, but for us, in the New Testament, the battle imagery is kept. But the battle is not against people. We're obviously not called to go out with, with physical weapons and slaughter people. The battle is against three main enemies, sin, the devil, and what the New Testament calls the world. Uh, the world doesn't mean the physical globe, um, but it means that the kind of society set up against God. And in that battle, you're going to need to be active. You are at war with the sin that remains in you. Hey, Christ has been struck. So, so you'll, you'll never have to pay the price for it. You won't go to hell because you'll sin. If you trust Jesus, he's been struck. He's gone through hell for you. But the presence of sin remains. It's like someone moving into your house. Uh, and they live with you for a while. And eventually you, you turn against them. You think, no, no, I want, I want rid of you. But they just won't move out. So you, you slowly, imagine the kind of logic. You can't get rid of them. You manage to sort of change the locks on the kitchen. They can't get in the kitchen anymore. And you sort of shove them upstairs and they, they can't get in the bathroom anymore. You just shove them into the bedroom and they can't get out of their bedroom. But they're still there. Sin will never be fully out of your life until you die or Christ returns. And so you're called to fight against this, this pesky sin that remains within you. Satan, there is an enemy out there. You can't see him. That's one of his tricks to pretend that he doesn't exist because you can't see him physically. We're all brought up. Kind of trained at school that you know if something can't be shown by science then it's not true of course that's a complete assumption there's no scientific basis for that scientific claim but still it's drilled into our heads if you can't see it or touch it or smell it or hear it you know using the, the cleverest equipment doesn't exist but satan does exist and so just as we're called to put to death sin you hear the warfare imagery, put to death sin. We're told to resist the devil. Again, it's fighting imagery. Or the end of Ephesians, Paul talks about taking your stand, putting on the armour of God to stand against the devil. It's fighting imagery. And it's hard. And so we start to wonder again, is God for us? Will I ever conquer my sin? Is there any hope? Can I stand against the just the, the, just the sheer pressure of trying to live as a Christian on my own. Perhaps you're very isolated as a Christian. Your, your family or your workplace, university. You're the only one. And so the world crushes in on you. And nice people, okay, this isn't about sort of baddies and goodies. Nice people, but nice people who are your friends and colleagues, who you love and respect and spend hours with, 
but you know have a totally different value system to you, are trying to pull you towards the world and away from God. And you think, I just can't survive this. Is God for me? God, what are you doing? Well, where does the power come from? Does it come from Joshua's sword? Does it come from the uh, flexing biceps of his warriors? Now, the power comes from what? Moses' rod. Again, this symbol of God's justice and power. When Moses holds up his arms, the rod of God, essentially to heaven, I think that's what the gesture is, It's, it's Lord help us. Then the people, the soldiers, win. The power comes from above, in other words, not from below. It's a lesson in part on prayer. Spiritual battles are sport spiritually. How is your prayer life? How much are you coming to God for this spiritual drink that comes from Christ? Ultimately, the power of his Holy Spirit. And begging that he helps you in the fight against your own sin, against the devil. If we're not coming to drink, then we're going to get weak. Your physical thirst, if you don't drink for 24 hours, you know about it, don't you? You get thirsty, your lips dry up. Children, have you ever not drunk for just a whole morning or maybe you've gone and played football outside or run around outside? You get really thirsty and your mouth gets dry and please, I want a drink. Mum, I need a drink. Dad, I need a drink. But when we don't pray, the, 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 the horrible thing about spiritual thirst is we don't notice it. We're not drinking from Christ. We're not praying to him daily. We're not asking for his grace. And what happens is we don't even notice we're thirsty. We get weaker and weaker and we just don't realise. But life in the desert is meant to be all about drinking from Christ. Him giving us the power to fight these enemies. As a church, we are meant to think of ourselves as soldiers. Children, look around the room and think. Picture everybody not wearing their... their jeans or dresses or skirts or whatever but picture everyone in armor okay look at your mum and imagine a helmet okay your dad with a sword okay think of yourself okay with a shield strapped to your arm okay and wearing wearing a chain mail okay imagine every time you come to church that's how you're meant to imagine everybody it's a battle and prayer is how we fight it it's how we fight for the nations it's how we fight in evangelism. Okay, it is prayer first, because the power is God's, not ours. So, so much of our weakness, I suspect, as Christians and as a, as a church, is that we're just so weak in, in prayer. We don't come. How do you think of the prayer meeting? The church prayer meeting? Oh, it's the week I can skip. It's not community group, no one will notice. Oh, a bit tired. It's been a long day, hard day at work. Oh, it's, it's not really for me. You know, I'm just a student or I'm just a youngster or whatever. That, that is central. That people come together to drink from the rock and fight in prayer. But actually, we, we, we don't want to end. We don't want to end by looking at ourselves in our prayer life, do we? Because it is weak. It's important. It's essential. But we are weak in prayer. And the good news again of this passage is that I think Moses points us uh, not back to ourselves, but ultimately up to heaven. We saw in the first half of the passage, Jesus was struck for us. But Moses is himself here a picture of Jesus, I think. 
He's the great leader of God's people, Moses, in the Old Testament. He's the mediator. In fact, the book of Hebrews is, the first few chapters at least, is all about Moses and Jesus, how they, they act in very similar roles, but Jesus is greater. How do we see Moses representing Jesus here? Well, what is Jesus doing for you now? Is he dying for you right now, children? No. He's done that. Is he walking around Galilee preaching? No. Is he calming storms and healing lepers in Jerusalem? No. The New Testament tells us what he's doing. He's praying for you. Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is able to save to the uttermost, save completely, those who draw near to God through him, since he lives to make intercession for them, to intercede for someone, to pray for them. Jesus right now is at the right hand of God the Father praying for you. It is his hands that are lifted up in prayer. At the end of Luke's gospel, when Jesus goes back to heaven, he ascends. Here we get told the story twice. Once at the end of Luke's gospel, once at the beginning of Acts. The end of Luke's gospel is Jesus goes back to heaven. Do you know what he, what he looks like when he goes back? What's he doing? He's got his hands in his pockets. Okay, is, he, is he waving goodbye? No, he has his hands raised in blessing upon his people. Hands raised so that they would receive from God. This is a picture of blessing. Okay, when people raise their hands in the Bible. It's the idea of blessing. He has his hands raised so that his people will be blessed. The last thing they will see is Jesus going into heaven, still concerned with them, concerned that they would receive the blessing of God. And that's what he does now. And Murray McShane, a Scottish minister, said... If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next door room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus is praying for you now. Your holiness, your battle against the devil, your battle in evangelism, everything you fear, your battle in the wilderness. He is praying for you. And that is your hope. Is God for you? Yes, certainly, because he's been struck for you. Is God for you? Yes, certainly, because he continues to pray for you. So you need to be active in this battle, yes. But you don't need to be powerful. He is trying to feed you. He is trying to give you, and he will give you, the water from the rock that is the Holy Spirit. Your salvation rests not on the strength of your prayers, but on his. And so in that, in that courage, in that confidence, we come to him and ask him to give. In the Gospels, as Jesus preaches... Uh, he tells the disciples, come to your father and pray. Your father is like a good father who longs and loves to give good gifts to his children. That's what he says in one gospel. But in Luke's gospel, he says he longs and loves to give the Holy Spirit to his children. The best gift God can give you is his spirit, this water, this life-giving water. Come and ask, and he will give. He will equip you for life in the desert. He will take you home. Let's pray. Our father, we are thirsty and yet we don't realise it. We're weak and we do not see it. We have enemies all around us and so often we either make peace or we flee. And so we pray you'd wake us up this morning. We ask for the good gift of your spirit. Without him, we have no hope. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you were struck at the cross. You went under your, the, the just punishment that was ours in order that we might live. And therefore we pray that you would pour your spirit on us, Father and Son. Send your spirit upon us to strengthen us for life in the desert. Make us therefore spiritually awake and make us prayerful people. Pray for the children here, they would grow up to depend on you in prayer daily. 
Pray for those who've got away and drifted from being prayerful in our own lives. Wake us up, uh, we ask. I pray for our own prayer meetings. They might come to life, be full of the, the power of your spirit. And that even though we are weak, would we know that you are strong, that you, the Lord Jesus, have gone up a higher hill, the highest hill of all, that you're in the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, praying for us and blessing us. So in your name, we ask these things for your glory's sake. Amen.